This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Ed Laskowski, a specialist in physical medicine and rehabilitation and sports medicine at Mayo Clinic's Rochester campus. A recent Harris poll found that 86% of people take some kind of vitamin or supplement. And a recent research study found that about 60% of people report using some kind of dietary supplement in the past 30 days. Multiple claims are made regarding the benefits of vitamins, which are true. And how do we sift through all the hype? Well, we have just the person to do that. Today, we're joined by Dr. Don Hensbrew, who is Associate Professor of Nutrition and Preventive Medicine at Mayo Clinic Rochester, Director of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, and editor of multiple books on healthy eating and living a healthy lifestyle, including The Mayo Clinic Diet and the new Mayo Clinic Cookbook. Thanks for joining us today, Don, to give us insight on this topic. Ed, happy to be here. Almost every patient asks me about, you know, when, I, when we talk about diet and nutrition, they say, you know, doc, you know, I, you know, I take some vitamins, you know, I, I don't eat the best, but, you know, I take vitamins. Can vitamins make up for a poor diet, Don? In general, no. And there are different reasons to take dietary supplements. And first, there are many different types of dietary supplements. There are vitamins, which we're going to talk about today. There are minerals, there are probiotics, many, many types, but we're going to focus on vitamins today. There are different reasons to take vitamins. A documented deficiency, for example, if somebody is low on a specific vitamin, then absolutely they need to replenish that specific vitamin. Some predisposing factors can occur that make taking vitamins more likely. One example is, and this is a a mineral, iron, but premenopausal women are just in iron balance. If they have excess menstrual flow, that may cause iron deficiency. And in that situation, they need iron. Another example, again, in women is women who can become pregnant, are planning to become pregnant. A prenatal vitamin is often recommended. That's mainly for folic acid. If women have adequate folic acid stores on board when they become pregnant, their offspring are less likely to have neural tube defects. And that's very strongly supported by evidence. So, and the key here is for women to start the prenatal vitamin or some type of vitamin that contains folic acid before they become pregnant. Oftentimes women don't find out till later after they're pregnant. And by then their nutritional status has already been determined for the fetus. So the key there is planning, but those are a couple of examples. Some other examples would be after somebody has bariatric surgery or other gastrointestinal surgery, they may not absorb vitamins as well. So in all of these situations, there's documented deficiencies and people should take vitamins. Totally separate from that is vitamins for prevention. And it's commonly believed, well, if I take a vitamin, that'll make up for my poor diet, as you mentioned. Really isn't the case. There is a lot of data supporting a healthy diet. If you look at the studies on vitamins, including multivitamins, there isn't a lot of supportive data for prevention or wellness. I like to say sometimes if the data on on diet is this big, The data on supplements in general for prevention is about this big, and there's even some data that it may be harmful. Not a lot, but with some specific vitamins, it can be real harmful. Multivitamins, probably not a lot of harm, although there might be. There's even some data on that. 
but probably not a benefit. So I generally don't recommend routine vitamins for supplementation, but I'm very big on promoting a healthy diet because the evidence strongly supports that. That's great information, Don. Should we be checking certain vitamin levels on our patients on a regular basis? You know, like we check a a CBC, is there a core group of vitamins that we should be concerned about? And which vitamins should be most concerned about? Which patients maybe should we be more concerned about, about checking these levels? Yeah, really good question. In general, no, unless you'd suspect a a deficiency, then it's a good idea to check levels such as a vitamin deficiency or something. For routine prevention, again, there are two that stand out a little bit, although there aren't any formal recommendations. One is vitamin D and the other is vitamin B12. 20 to 50% of people in the United States have relatively low vitamin D values. We're staying out of the sun more these days, trying to prevent skin cancer. And so vitamin D values have dropped a little bit because of that. In general, we don't get a lot of vitamin D from our diet. So vitamin D is one that is relatively common. And in some situations, such as somebody who has osteoporosis, or is at risk for vitamin D deficiency, there are certain predisposing conditions, people who are in nursing homes and don't get much sun. As we age, vitamin D levels drop a little bit. People who are heavy absorb less vitamin D from the sun. So I have a pretty low threshold for checking vitamin D values, but there aren't any strong recommendations to routinely check it. The other one is vitamin B12. As we age, we absorb vitamin B12 from food less efficiency. It's been estimated that 15% or so of people over the age of 65 have early vitamin B12 deficiency. And so in that situation, Sometimes people will check a vitamin B12 level, although again, there aren't any formal guidelines to do so, but I have a low threshold for doing it. The importance of that is that occult B12 deficiency can predispose to mood disorders, memory problems, and even cognitive dysfunction, as well as nerve dysfunction. So those are two that I have a low threshold from checking, although there aren't any formal guidelines. And in terms of recommending vitamins, Those are two of the few supplements that I will recommend. B12 is totally Mm non-toxic. And so somebody who's over the age of 65, give or take, may want to take a vitamin B12 supplement of say 500 to 1000 micrograms a day because it's non-toxic. People who are on antacid medications, such as the PPIs like uh, omeprazole or related medications, that also lowers B12 levels. So that's another group that you may want to have a low threshold, either for checking or just recommending a supplement. Same thing with with vitamin D. Oftentimes I won't check a level, but I have a low threshold of recommending a vitamin D supplement close to the RDA, 8,000 units a day or so. There is a, a, a safety factor in there. That may help people and probably will not, uh, in all likelihood, will not institute predispose to any toxicity. So those are two in particular. For the rest of them, we don't routinely check vitamin levels unless we are suspecting a deficiency. Mm-hmm. That's great. Vitamin C, that's one everybody asks about in a lot of uh, maybe misconceptions or myths over the years, but any new data on vitamin C, its efficacy on colds, optimal dosage, anything? Yeah, the relationship with colds goes back years and years, and it hasn't really changed a whole lot. There have been a lot of studies about vitamin C. 
we get vitamin C, obviously, from fruits and vegetables in our diet. Most people have adequate levels of vitamin C. In terms of randomized trials on colds, there isn't a lot of data to support it. Some years ago, the data seemed to suggest that vitamin C might help decrease the duration of a cold by maybe a half day or so. And even that was controversial in terms of the severity of symptoms, probably won't do a lot of good. So there isn't a real strong relationship. We're not talking about minerals, but there's been a lot of talk over the years about zinc, especially zinc lozenges and colds. And again, that data has gone back and forth too. So probably not of a lot of good evidence for zinc and, and colds as well. I'd stick with, for most people, trying to get the, those nutrients from our diet, and most people get adequate amounts. On the bioavailability of the product, the, the vitamin is better from food stuff than from a pill we take. Is that correct? That's very correct. Yeah. And Mother Nature was pretty smart. She put nutrients in the right combination and concentrations in our food. That's how we evolved over the years. And let me give you an example about why supplements may not be as good as food. With vitamin E, for example, there are different types of vitamin E. There is alpha-tocopherol, which is the most common one, the most well-known one. That's what's in a vitamin E supplement usually is alpha-tocopherol. Well, there's also gamma-tocopherol, delta-tocopherol. There are tocotrienols that have vitamin E activity. If you're taking a vitamin E supplement, which I generally don't recommend, you're only getting alpha-tocopherol. It may be interfering with the absorption of these other beneficial vitamin E compounds that are found in food. So in food, you're getting all the different compounds, the vitamins that have vitamin E activity. In a supplement, you're only getting what's in that pill, and it may not be in the optimal concentration or combination with other nutrients. Mm -hmm. That's great. You know, in that end, we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with COVID, but any vitamins shown to be beneficial in preventing or treating COVID? Yeah, good question. When COVID first came out, we didn't know a lot of what was going on. And there was people were looking for all kinds of things. And people are generally familiar with some of the treatments that didn't show people were using and didn't show any efficacy at all. People did look at different nutrients, specifically zinc, vitamin C, and also vitamin D. There was a randomized trial that was done with zinc and vitamin C and COVID. The trial was actually called off early they rarely do that with a randomized trial unless the data are very clear. It showed no benefit from zinc or vitamin C. And so in general, there probably is not any benefit in taking a vitamin or other nutrients to help prevent or treat COVID. And Don, you sometimes hear about these megadoses, megadoses of C. or me When are vitamins bad? Can these doses say, well, they may not help me, but they're not going to hurt me. What, they may hurt us, right? Or is You're there absolutely right. And there are a couple examples of that, vitamin E and beta carotene being examples. Years ago, we knew that people who ate the most beta carotene, which is converted into vitamin A in the body, People who had the, ate the most beta carotene from foods such as carrots and other foods and had the highest blood levels of beta carotene did better in terms of heart disease and cancer. So people had a, a good idea at the time. Let's test it in a randomized trial. There were two very large trials of beta carotene done in the United States and overseas. Thousands and thousands of people, people know the randomized trial is the best form of evidence it not only did not show any benefit, both of these trials from beta carotene, but it showed harm. 
Smokers and former smokers had a higher risk of lung cancer and a higher risk of dying in those who took the beta carotene supplements. And people, the first trial came out and people said, well, what's going on here? It must be a fluke. The second trial came out and confirmed that. And what we think happened is the same thing I mentioned with vitamin E. There are hundreds of different carotenoid compounds in foods. Beta carotene gives foods its orange color. Lycopene gives tomatoes its red color. And if we're only taking one of them, such as beta carotene, it might be inhibiting the absorption of these other carotenoid compounds. Secondly, beta carotene, like vitamin E, is an antioxidant. However, when it's around the lung and at different circumstances and environment, it can turn into a prooxidant. And that might be part of the basis why it increased the risk of lung cancer. Vitamin E, the same thing happened years ago. People were taking vitamin E to prevent heart disease, and the randomized trials showed no benefit and the suggestion of, of harm in some people. So those are good examples of nutrients. Well, they're not going to hurt. Well, they did in this case, and they actually uh, caused increased risk of, of dying overall. Antioxidants in general. I mentioned vitamin E, beta carotene. Vitamin A is another one. All three of those have a slight, not a strong relative risk, but a statistically significant relative risk of increasing total mortality. That's exactly what we don't want to do. Take something for prevention and it causes just the opposite, causes people to die more from a, a seemingly innocuous nutrient. The old adage, it might help and it probably won't hurt, doesn't really apply to some of these things, even though they seem very benign. Right. Wow. That's fascinating data, especially those who say, well, you know, I don't eat fish or whatever, so I'm going to take all these antioxidants. It, it may not certainly be the best thing for them. So Exactly. Don, just in this whole area, you know, vitamins are really not approved by the FDA. So how do we ensure that the vitamins we buy are safe and high quality? What, what kind of things should a person look at? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Pharmaceutical products have to be approved by the FDA for purity and safety. And we know what's in a, in a product. With vitamins and other supplements, they're covered by the Deshay Act of 1994, Dietary Supplement Health and Education Act. And basically, it says that to put a dietary supplement on the market, you don't have to prove it works. You're supposed to have safety data, but it's not always readily available or they don't always check on it. So we're kind of at the whim of companies who are producing these nutrients. In addition to direct toxicity, there are many situations. There was an article a couple of years ago that showed that many supplements, I'm not talking about only vitamins now, but many supplements have other pharmaceutical products in the supplement as a contamination and they've caused adverse effects. So it's kind of a buyer beware market out there. There are a couple of things people can look for. One is a designation that it has met criteria for the right dose in there and safety. USP certification, United States Pharmacopeia or USP is one designation. So if a, a vitamin or supplement has USP on it, you could be a little bit more sure that it's, it's good in terms of safety and, and, and quality. NSF is another designation. And then Consumer Lab is another one. NSF is another standard. It actually has been around this designation. It doesn't apply only to vitamins. It applies to many other things. And NSF stands for National Sanitation Foundation. It was actually created as providing standards for sanitation, but they've now are doing this for other areas as well. 
including vitamins and supplements. So USP, NSF, or Consumer Lab provides some evidence that they're trying to meet safety and, and quality guidelines. That's great information, Don. Thank you. You know, we, we focus this on vitamins, but two supplements we can just touch on with a bit of time here that I, I get asked about all the time, creatine and turmeric. Those are ones that are talked about a lot now. We get a lot of questions about those. Maybe Could you just address those a little bit, creatine and turmeric? Yeah. Turmeric is a, a spice and people cook with that. It's often a component of curry and curry is just a mixture of different spices. It has very mild anti-inflammatory properties. And so people will sometimes take a turmeric supplement for inflammation. I'm not a big fan of that. And the reason why is number one, the degree that it affects inflammation is very modest. It's a very small amount. If somebody needs an anti-inflammatory, I recommend one that's going to give them some good anti-inflammatory properties and decrease pain relief, you know, a pharmaceutical product. The other thing is I've had a couple of patients and we have to be careful. You don't want to rely on anecdote, but I've had a couple of patients who developed fairly significant gastrointestinal side effects, including prolonged diarrhea. And it was traced to the turmeric supplement and that is listed as one of the potential side effects in the national medicine database. So potential for side effects is there and I usually don't recommend it. Creatine is the other one that's been very popular with athletes for quite some time. In the past, I think it was even more popular. People were taking it. There's some data to suggest that it may help with explosive activities or high intensity sports activities, not necessarily endurance, but it also affects fluid balance in the body. People can get cramps and other side effects from it. So to me, that's not worth it. It's important to stay hydrated. And for weekend warriors, I think it's important to stick with the basics. You don't need that slight extra advantage unless you're a pro athlete. And then I'd, I'd uh, consider these things in conjunction with somebody who really knows what they're doing in this area. So I generally don't recommend that one either. I agree, Don. Great information. And even the studies on creatine, even the improvement studies, it's maybe a 10% increase in very explosive type power things like a sprint race or a very one max weight lift. So for, for most people with their fitness activities, probably aren't going to notice very much. But uh, I agree 100%, Ed. Don, anything else you'd like to bring up about this topic? It's, it's, uh, you've given us incredible information. This is such a common area that, that patients often ask us about, but anything else that you'd like to say? Well, just kind of a final statement. We started out with this too. It, it seems innocuous, but the degree of benefit in many cases is not that great for prevention and wellness from vitamins and many other supplements. There is the potential for side effects, and it's hard sometimes to realize if a side effect or a or an adverse effect is from the supplement, but there certainly is documented evidence of that. And once again, compared to a diet, the evidence is overwhelming that healthy dietary habits can improve health in many different ways. And in summary, people get sometimes uh, caught in the weeds and details of healthy dietary habits. It doesn't have to be drudgery. And the best diet can be summarized quite simply, try and eat minimally processed foods, and mostly plants. All the fresh or frozen fruits and vegetables people want, whole grains, beans, nuts, heart healthy fats such as olive oil, avocados, and everybody needs a treat now and then. But if people generally follow that, that is more likely to improve their health long term 
by magnitudes more than any vitamins or supplements, unless somebody has a documented deficiency, which is a clinical issue. Fantastic advice. Uh, yeah, there is no magic bullet, right? I get to ask this in sports a lot, you know, and, and even a lot of the great athletes, you go back to their patterns and it's basic clean eating, as you described. It's, it's not a magic pill or anything that does it. It's those foundational elements, which you've uh, so elegantly outlined. So thank you so much, Don. We've been talking about vitamins with Dr. Don Hensrud. Thank you so much for your time, Don. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcast, please follow us wherever you subscribe to podcasts. Stay healthy and see you next week. Mm-hmm.